Father, we thank you that we can be confident of the things that we have just said because you are a God who has spoken to us supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the scriptures that bear witness to him. And we pray that you would renew our confidence in Christ and his gospel as we study the scriptures together now. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Well, it's remarkably easy to say one thing and to mean another. So the other day I asked my four-year-old to push the door to, and he readily obliged, but then he asked a question. Daddy, why do I have to push the door to? I pushed it one and it closed. (laughs) It's remarkably easy to say one thing and to mean another. So many a churchgoer across the world today will sing of amazing grace, but their attitude to the outsider reveals that whatever they might say or sing, they mean something else. For them, grace is not amazing, it's offensive. Offensive grace. How sour the sound that saved a wretch like him. He once was lost, but now seems found, was blind, now claims to see. See, our attitude to the outsider, to the unbeliever, hostile or indifferent, reveals whether we've really understood the gospel of God's grace. I may say that I believe that God's forgiveness is unearned, that it is undeserved, that it is a gift of love, but it is easy to deny it in practice. See, what happens when somebody who is not like me becomes a Christian? Do I welcome them or withdraw from them? Is it a source of wonder to me or worry that God should forgive them after all the things that they have done? Is God's grace amazing or offensive? I think the message of Jonah 4 is simple and it's this. The gospel is amazing grace for everyone but you, like me, don't believe it. The gospel is amazing grace for everyone but we don't believe it. So verses 1 to 4, the problem is identified. Now you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, Jonah, this reluctant prophet, takes God's word to the great city of Nineveh. And doubtless to his surprise and to ours, there was a widespread response of repentance. That in a city that lay at the very heart of a hostile and aggressive Assyrian empire. So if you cast your eye over to chapter 3 and verse 5, you read the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And so verse 10 When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And so there is the greatest spiritual revival in Old Testament history and how does Jonah react? Chapter 4 verse 1, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Or as one translation puts it, it was wrong to Jonah as a great wrong. 
It's hard to read Jonah's reaction and not see him as some sort of prophet equivalent of Harry Enfield's Kevin. Uh, Jonah, the surly teenager, slams a few doors in Nineveh and storms out of the city in the mother of all sulks. And yet there has to be more to Jonah's reaction than some sort of petulant juvenile strop. I think there are clues in Jonah's prayer in verse 2. See, why was Jonah so reluctant to take God's word to Nineveh in the first place? Because he knew that God was a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now the problem is, that doesn't seem like an explanation to us. How does God's incredible grace and compassion explain Jonah's reluctance to take God's word to Nineveh? doesn't seem to explain anything, does it? Indeed, God's grace and compassion seems to be the very reason why Jonah ought to take God's word to Nineveh. Hence, Jonah's request in verse 3 sounds like, more like, sounds little, like little more than a self-pitying overreaction of monumental proportions. But when in Exodus 34, God reminded his people that he is compassionate and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, in the very same breath, he also reminds his people that he is uncompromisingly just. And Jonah surely knew that. Ah, yes, the Lord forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin, but as Exodus 34 puts it, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. So you think, well, what's going on in Nineveh? After all, when in chapter 1 God speaks to Jonah of Nineveh, the language seems to deliberately echo the language that is used of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that seem to act as a byword for wickedness throughout the Old Testament. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness came up before the Lord in Genesis 18... So here in Jonah 1, the wickedness of Nineveh came up before the Lord. Yeah, I think it's hardly a flattering comparison, is it, to be compared with Sodom and Gomorrah. God may well forgive wickedness and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So you think, what's going on in Nineveh? See, it matters that God is just, doesn't it? What sort of God would he be if he simply swept wrongs under the carpet? What sort of world would this be if wickedness was of no consequence? And you see, Jonah's prayer is more than an abstract problem for a student in some sort of ethics tutorial. The wickedness of Nineveh had pressing personal implications for Jonah and God's people. Nineveh was a city at the heart of the Assyrian Empire, the hostile and aggressive superpower that was bearing down on Israel's borders. It mattered in principle and in practice that God was just. So how could God do nothing in the face of such wickedness? Now it seems to me that Jonah's implicit concern for justice was right. But his cry for justice was wrong. Why? 
Because what Jonah says, and indeed the way Jonah says it, actually impugns God's justice and denies his mercy. See, I wonder whether you notice just how often Jonah refers to himself in verse 2. His prayer is both egocentric and ethnocentric. O Lord, is that not what I said when I was still at home? Or or literally, O Lord, is that not what I said when I was still in my country? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. isn't it sometimes people reveal more not in what they say but in the way they say it so average conversation with teenage offspring how are you fine sometimes people reveal more not in what they say but in the way they say it so Jonah can quote the Bible but he doesn't really seem to understand it does he He seems to think that God needs to learn a lesson or two about justice from him. Of course, you put it like that and it seems ridiculous, unbelievably presumptuous, breathtakingly arrogant. But Jonah really believed he was championing God's justice, not puning it. And so the Lord presses home a point with a gentle question, verse 4. Have you any right to be angry? See, God showed Nineveh mercy, and Jonah was indignant. Nineveh didn't deserve mercy. Precisely. Because it is amazing grace. The church is full of people who don't deserve mercy. Indeed, recognising that is a fundamental membership requirement. Why then do we find it so difficult to welcome amongst us, still less to actively seek out people who are not like us? Is it perhaps because we imagine that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our merit and not grounded in his mercy? See, why do we make the church into some sort of moral club for the respectable rather than a place of forgiveness for the sinner. When Paul writes to the New Testament church of Corinth, he warns them that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, even as he warns the Corinthians about the danger of such behaviour, he also reminds them, and that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. Should not the same be true of Fullwood if the gospel really is amazing grace for everyone? See, is there really a warm welcome here for the single mother for the recovering alcoholic for the benefit fraudster for the rebellious teenager for the adulterer 
for the backslidden believer, for the pornography addict, for the tax dodger, for the hostile atheist. Would not Paul say to us, that is what some of you were, are? Why then do we pretend it is otherwise? And why, knowing that that is true, why are we so reluctant to welcome in our midst those whose sinful struggles happen to be different to our sinful struggles? See, all too often we want justice for others, particularly for those whose sin we consider particularly offensive. All too often we want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. The trouble is we just can't see it. We think we understand grace, but our attitude to the outsider reveals otherwise. The gospel is amazing grace for everyone, but we just don't believe it. And so if in verses 1 to 4 Jonah's problem is identified, it is only in the remarkable events of verses 5 to 11 that Jonah's problem is exposed. So verse 5, we join Jonah's justice vigil. Uh, heading east of the city, Jonah becomes the Ray Mears outdoor survival expert of the 8th century BC. Uh, making himself a shelter from nature's leftovers, he sits in its shade to wait to see what would happen to the city. Now the good news is that God hasn't given up on Jonah, even though Jonah has almost given up on God. And east of the city, in the scorching heat and wind of a Middle Eastern desert, God provides for Jonah. A vine, a worm, a wind. An illustrated lesson about the meaning of grace. So in the first place, verse 6, God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Sometimes what the Lord provides in our lives isn't what we want. But it is invariably what we need. Lessons in the school of grace can be painful and difficult, as Jonah himself found out. So, the end of verse 8, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then comes God's gentle question, verse 9. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Do you have a right, Jonah? Of course, Jonah thinks he does. I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. And you, you do sort of understand why he's so angry, don't you? If you stand in his shoes, it, it does sort of make sense. You think, what's God doing in the world when the likes of Nineveh get off scot-free? What, what is God doing in my life with, when with one hand he gives me happiness and with the other he gives me misery? 
you do kind of understand what Jonah means to someone who doesn't really understand grace it must have felt like injustice abounding and yet almost as soon as Jonah's words leave his mouth we the reader sense that Jonah's folly and perhaps ours too is suddenly exposed verse 10 but the Lord said you have been concerned about this vine though you did not tend it or make it grow it sprang up overnight and died overnight but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well should I not be concerned about that great city? See, for Jonah, the vine was a divine gift that he neither deserved nor earned. It was all of grace. You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. And yet Jonah speaks of God's undeserved favour in terms of his unquestioned right. Nineveh deserved justice. He deserved mercy. You see, your attitude to the outsider really does reveal whether you've understood grace. We deserve justice. But justice isn't actually what we need. Justice leaves us condemned. Only grace brings pardon and life. And if grace is undeserved, then the gospel message has to be for everyone, doesn't it? Has to be. If you don't understand that, grace will always be more offensive than amazing. And you will, like Jonah, be more concerned about self and salvation. You have been concerned about this vine. A mere plant, Jonah. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? course there are marks of grace even in the Lord's rebuke it is striking isn't it to compare Jonah's angry and self-righteous accusation with the Lord's gentle and patient questioning a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out see lessons in grace call for repentance they do not condemn And yet for all the gentleness of the Lord's rebuke, it, it is in the end devastating, isn't it? But Jonah is silenced. We, the reader, are silenced. And the last word is the Lord's. And his final word in this book is a question. A question addressed in the first place to Jonah, but then also to the readers of this extraordinary book. Of course, the thing about questions is that they are inevitably provocative, aren't they? So we could try it out, couldn't we? For those of you who drifted off to sleep ten minutes ago, are you still awake? What about a question from Almighty God? That has to be the ultimate sit-up-and-take-notice question, doesn't it? 
Nineveh has more than 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? And so God's global concerns shame our parochial concern. The gospel is amazing grace for everyone, but we just don't believe it. Now in a moment we will gather around the Lord's table and in bread and wine we will remember the place where God's justice and God's mercy meet. And here there is encouragement of amazing grace. If you think that you don't deserve God's forgiveness, you are right. If you think God will not welcome you home, you are wrong. The gospel is amazing grace for everyone, even you. See, there's many a prodigal here who in repentance and faith has turned home only to discover that the Father had run to greet them even when they were still a long way off. The Father will not refuse you if you do the same. But if there is encouragement here, there is also challenge. If this building is full of prodigals, it is also full of older brothers. The older brother looks at the repentant prodigal, the outsider if you like, and he complains to his father with all the spirit of Jonah. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home you kill the fattened calf for him see your attitude to the outsider really does reveal whether you've understood grace so I wonder what would our lives look like what would our church look like if we understood that the gospel is amazing grace for everyone? Would we be more involved with our work colleagues? Would we be more patient with our neighbours, more persistent with our unbelieving family members? Would we perhaps get involved with the kids' work here or help out with Friday Club or the work amongst the homeless in the city centre? Would we support those taking the gospel to the nations, not least the mission partners that have been sent out from this church, would we? Of course, Jonah 4 is not some sort of tub-thumping, guilt-inducing call to be more busy or more generous. That sort of response is to turn grace into works, as if our activity or generosity can earn God's favour. God doesn't need your money or your time any more than mine. Grace isn't amazing if we imagine it can be earned. But if grace is amazing, if grace is amazing for you and for me, 
and for the thousands in the city of Sheffield and for the millions across the world in villages and towns and cities, millions who cannot tell their right hand from their left, if grace really is amazing for them and for us, and God is concerned that they should know that, how can it be otherwise for us? The gospel is amazing grace for everyone.